This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. After the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, the sound quality may be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they all still contain great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is international best-selling author Alex George. We spoke with him via Zoom in April of 2020 about his book, The Paris Hours, published by Flatiron Books. Before starting his career as an author, he worked as a corporate lawyer in his home country in the United Kingdom, as well as Paris. Now living in Columbia, Missouri, he owns his own bookstore, still occasionally practices law, and spends his days writing critically acclaimed novels like A Good American and Setting Free the Kites. When researching for his latest book, his focus was initially on the iconic artists that were working in Paris in the 1920s. But upon the discovery of a single maze memoir, his plans began to change. I began to wonder whether those people really needed me to tell their story. But I was firmly in Paris in 1927. I'd done all this research and I had a great deal of thoughts uh, about it. Uh, and I was, and I, so I wanted to write something. So I just thought, well, we'll just change the focus. We'll, we'll, we'll shift the focus away from these well-known people and instead tell four different stories. We'll hear how he crafted and intertwined those four stories in The Paris Hours, learn a bit about his experience working with his publisher, and explore his personal history living and learning in Paris. Best-selling novelist Alex George joins us now on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Angie Weidinger. Alex George, thank you so much for joining us from your home in Columbia, Missouri, right? Yep, that's where I am. Nice to, nice to be here, Angie. Can you give a, a brief description for, for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet of, of what this book is about? Sure. So the, the Paris Hours is set over the course of one day uh, on a hot summer's day in Paris in 1927. Um, and it's a novel, but there are really four individual stories that are told in this book, and they're told in sort of strictly alternating uh, rotation. Um, and each of the, and although the, the, the stories are intertwined and cross-pollinate with each other at various points, but really each story has its own principal character. So there are four main characters in the book. Uh, one of them uh, is a, 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 a destitute painter, uh, who's also sort of lovesick and is on the run from some thugs to whom he owes money. Uh, there is an Armenian puppeteer who uh, is a refugee from the Armenian genocide and who um, performs puppet shows uh, in the public parks in Paris for children uh, in a language that they don't understand. Uh, there is a writer who is walking the streets looking for his daughter who he lost um, and then finally, there is the maid of Marcel Proust, the great writer. And the story really began with her. Uh, I was reading uh, a, the memoir of Proust's actual maid, Celeste Albaret. And at one point in the memoir, she talks about how Proust asked her to burn uh, 
um, some notebooks that he had um, that he had written in really the bones of his novel, um, In Search of Lost Time. Uh, and she burned them. And the, the novelist in me is always, novelists are like magpies, we're always on the lookout for shiny things that we want to pick up. Um, and that was one for me. And I just thought immediately, as novelists often do, that, well, what if, you know, and that, what if she had saved one of those notebooks and hadn't burned them all? Um, and that was the first question. And the second question was, and what if there was something in that notebook that was important? And so really from that, that little seed, the, the rest of the story sort of emerged. Okay, so you just mentioned that there are the four separate characters, mm -hmm. and and, and I, you know their their stories are told individually, and then they kind of converge at the end. So, right. did you write it the way that it is in the book, or did you write each of their stories individually? How did you go about that? Yeah, no, I didn't write it the way that it appears in the book because in order to do that, my brain would have to be about fifty thousand times bigger than it actually is because. <laughs> Trying to hold all of that in place would be almost impossible. So what I did was to write one character and I'd write a chunk, like six or seven chapters, one after the other. So, so that particular story would sort of get, you'd do like a third of it at once and then do the next one and then do the next one. So I had these four stories and then I kind of shut, almost literally shuffled them together so that they were going in rotation. And it was... The, the, the magnitude of the headache uh, is hard. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a real pain because, you know, I had, as I mentioned, you know, I, the, the whole story takes place over the course of one day. And each of those chapters, although they go in strict rotation, it also moves the day forward chronologically. So it was incredibly hard to do. And I would think that I had done it and then I would realize that sort of halfway through there was a, sort of a glitch in the space-time continuum we, oh, we went back a bit so then I had to move everything around again and it's one of those things where you move one tiny thing and it's like dominoes and everything else falls over so it required um, a lot of patience and a lot of coffee and uh, just and a great deal of focus just to, to make sure everything worked um, and there were many you know, people have asked, well, why did you set it in one day? And I've been asking myself that a lot. It's like, <laughs> it was a complete nightmare, but I'm glad I did it. It was, uh, it was, it was fun to do. Um, you know, it's always, when you write books, it's fun to set yourself little challenges, um, even if they do occasionally make you want to beat your head against the wall. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed it, but it was, it was, yeah, it was hard. It was complicated. Wonderful. Well, I have to tell you, after I finished your book, I have yet to stop thinking about the ending. I, I can't mm. stop thinking about it. And, and, you know, what would happen in that next scene and all the little connection clues that I missed along the way. Was that your hope for your readers? Well, I mean, yes. By the end of the book, that was exactly my hope. And uh, it's been interesting to watch the reactions from readers and some people have gone oh that was perfect and other people have gone no you can't stop there and so there's there's been a mixture and some people have actually done both and they've gone you can't stop there but it was perfect so it, it's a there have been a, a number of different kinds of reactions to it um it just felt um i mean writing books is not a science it's all gut <laughs> at least it is for me anyway um and that just felt right um I just thought that leaving it somewhat unresolved was, was probably the way to go. 
Um, the interesting thing about the ending, though, is that it came in its present form, and I'm not going to give anything away, fairly late on uh, in the process. And in fact, the book had already been purchased by, um, by Macmillan, and I was sitting down with my editor, um, and as you do, having these big editorial meetings, and she was going, well, I think we need to change this, and have you thought about this, and just tweaking it and trying to polish it. And, and then she said something to me, she said, have you thought about maybe um, um, X being Y? And I thought, I thought, oh, that's, that's funny. She's got those two things confused. And I said, no, you don't mean that. And she said, no, that, that, that's, that's what I mean. Um, and then this light bulb went off and I thought, oh, that's rather good. So, so I then sort of rewrote the ending um, and then had to work backwards and sort of reverse engineer the whole thing to get to that point, which was complicated when you have a structure like the one I sort of imposed on myself. It was, it was something of a headache to do it, but hopefully it was worth it. Wow. And you had, like you said, you had to be careful, especially when you change the ending to, to, to make sure that the little secrets, you're, you're not revealing them, right? That you had to be Right. Careful. Yeah. And, and that was, that was fun too. And to go back and sort of, you drop these little clues in here and there and a lot of people have said well I got to the end and then I just turned back to the beginning and started reading again just to see where these various things were so that's kind of been fun to watch as well. I have to tell you I finished the book and I said but wait a minute and I had to turn back and reread sections and go I read that like I had made something up in my head about how Mm -hmm. something was (laughs) without giving anything away but then I read back, went back and read it. So, oh no, he used, he right. used different words than I used in my head. So right, right. That was kind yeah, of sneaky, sneaky novelist. You got to watch him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the other thing that I find so interesting is that you do have some very famous people in this book, including mm-hmm. Josephine Baker, a St. Louis native. Yes, of course. But, but, but they are secondary. And so I'm wondering yeah. why did you decide to sprinkle in these you know, Ernest Hemingway and Marcel Proust in here? So originally, um, they weren't going to be secondary. Um, I, uh, I, I first got the idea for writing a book set in Paris in this time um, when one evening I was driving in the car and listening to um, the radio and there was some music by Ravel uh, that came on, which was gorgeous. And then at the end of the piece, the announcer was talking about the genesis of the piece, and it was commissioned by uh, the Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev, who um, who formed this very famous ballet company in Paris called Les Ballets Russes. And the, the the roster of people who Diaghilev had on his sort of side, on his team to do to put these things on was just ridiculous. So you had Ravel and Stravinsky and Debussy writing music for you. You had Jean Cocteau writing the librettos. You had Coco Chanel designing the costumes and Marc Chagall doing the backdrop. I mean, it was nutty. Uh, and, I, and I just sat there in my car thinking, oh, well, that's my next book. That's what I'm going to do because that's insane. And how interesting would that be? So I began to do a lot of research about Paris in the 1920s and about these incredible geniuses that, that, that worked with Diaghilev. Um, and I had a wonderful time doing it. Um, and that was sort of where I found the memoir, the, the Proust's Maid's memoir was during the course of that research. Um, but I began to realize that 
Or I, well, let me put it another way. I began to wonder whether those people really needed me to tell their story. Right. Um, because, you know, if you listen to a Ravel melody, I mean, the art sort of speaks for itself. They don't actually need <laughs> me <laughs> to come along uh, and, and, and do that for them. And so I began to think about um, what I, but I, but I was firmly in Paris in 1927. I'd done all this research and I had a, a great deal of, sort of <laughs> thoughts uh, about it. Uh, and I was, and I, so I wanted to write something. And so I just thought, well, we'll just change the focus. We'll, we'll, we'll shift the focus away from these well-known people and instead um, tell four different stories, uh, much more quiet, if you like, and, and more ordinary. But I wanted to uh, season the narrative with little cameos by these more famous uh, inhabitants of the city at the time. So that was kind of how it worked. But and that was always how I wrote. So I never wrote it with those those uh, famous people being more central. But before I began the writing, that was always the idea. And then, then, then there was a shift. Well, I love the parts about with Ravel because those were, those were felt, felt so vivid to me. And, and mm. I, I had, I, I did not know that song. So I had to go and look it up afterwards. So I was so curious about it. And it is such a beautiful, beautiful song. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And yeah, it's, it's great. And I remember, I remember writing that, piece and mostly I type on the computer um, and I didn't do that and I wrote it longhand with a pencil of all things it was very sort of <laughs> very old-fashioned uh, and, and I just had it had it had it on repeat listening and listening and it was yeah it was fun I, I, I enjoyed that a lot and, it, and it's wonderful to and, and people have said that this is, oh, well I went to go and listen to that piece of music and, and I love that too because it's like, not only do I get to tell this story, but I can also sort of go, hey, by the way, you should listen to this because it's really beautiful. And, and, and it's just another chance to, you know, hopefully spread the word about beautiful things. So. Right, right. When well, I found myself looking up the characters as well, the, the famous people that I recognized their names, but kind of had forgotten, mm -hmm. you know, what they were famous for. So that was kind of fun to rediscover some people from yeah. the, the 20s who were famous back then. So Right, right. That was as well. Um, so I have to ask, you know, the, this, the, the book is obviously set in Paris. We've talked about that. But I read that when you came to the cover of your book, you were very specific about one thing, which was not yes. food. No Eiffel Tower. Right. That was like, that was the only thing that I really cared about. And Macmillan, who are a new publisher for me, and it's been such a joy to be published by them, they're absolutely wonderful. They sent me this thing that I'd never seen before, which is a, a whole questionnaire about covers and my thoughts about covers and philosophy about covers. Uh, and, and, and I answered it all, of course, like a good author, but really all I wanted to go was no Eiffel Tower, um, which I duly did. And of course, because of that, because they all have a good sense of humor and I think realized that I could be teased a little bit. Everything I saw had an Eiffel Tower on it to the point where the internal page design that they do, they do mock-ups of what the page looks like. They actually had a little Eiffel Tower, a little sort of picture of an Eiffel Tower next to every page number. So they had some fun with me. <laughs> 
But, you know, I, I mean, it, it didn't appear in the book and, and there it is. And there is no Eiffel Tower in sight. And um, I love this cover. And you know, it's not always the case that, that you do, but uh, this is wonderful. And I love the fact that it's an interior scene um, because a lot of the book feels to me anyway to be interior and sort of it's, you know, either happens on the inside or it's about what people are thinking about. So it felt, um, it felt really right to me. And it's also just a beautiful color. and. Um, yeah, so uh, I was happy not <laughs> not to see the Eiffel Tower in the final, the final thing. The reason to not want that was just because it's just so, it's what everybody thinks of, or what, what was the reason that you were so against it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is what everybody thinks about. And, you know, one of the challenges of writing a book about Paris is that everybody comes to Paris and thinks about Paris with certain preconceptions. Either they've been there, um, or they haven't, but they've seen enough movies about it. I mean, you know, the Eiffel Tower is, I would think, the most recognizable architectural structure in the world. Um, so right there, you know, you have, you are always combating preconceptions. And one of the jobs of a novelist, I think, is to sort of go against that a little bit and try and surprise your reader in some ways. So the Eiffel Tower is referenced, I think, once or twice in the book. Um, but you know nobody ever goes near it, uh, right. which and that and that is indeed how it is. If you go to Paris, I mean, I lived in Paris um, for over a year uh, as, when I was working as an attorney there, and no, no Parisians ever go near the thing. Um, uh, and and so I wanted to sort of get that across as well. And it was um, yeah, I mean, it was a constant process of working out. Well, I want to write about Paris. I want to write about it in a it's a really true and meaningful way, um, but also to subvert those expectations a little bit. And so, you know, one of the things was to take the, the narrative away from the more obvious tourist attractions that people might actually recognize and go, oh yeah, no, I've been there. Uh, and take it, you know, more into the back streets and things like that. So that was, that was, the very, that was a deliberate move on my part, for sure. Even it, the characters that Soren, that, that he, even you even talk about how he never went to see the Eiffel Tower and that he doesn't need to, right? Wasn't that part? Uh, that was um, who was that? That was Soren's friend's father, okay, uh, okay. who ran the grocery shop. Okay, uh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you've lived there. You just mentioned you worked there as an mm -hmm. attorney, but then you also went. That wasn't the first time that you've lived there, right? No, I went to school there when I was thirteen. I went to boarding school. Um, I, yeah, um, <laughs> yes, it's a, it really was in many ways, a, I mean, a really sort of formative thing. Um, I had been in boarding school before and I was going to another boarding school in the fall. And so there was this summer uh, where I really had nothing to do. And my parents thought, well, we've had enough of him. Let's go and send him off and make him sort of learn a language. And so... Uh, so I did, and I was fairly miserable for most of the time that I was there. I was quite homesick, and uh, you know, when I started, my French was was passable but not great. But um, by the time I came out, uh, it was much much better. Uh, and it's interesting because because of that, that meant that if you suddenly fast forward eight or nine years, uh, when I had qualified as an attorney, I went to go to Paris because I spoke French. And so it, it's funny how these little things become huge um sort of and you have no way of knowing at the time so living there twice was that part of the reason that you wanted to set this book i mean did you feel like 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I love Paris and um, we, you know, I took my kids there last summer and, you know, and it's fun just to show them around and um, it, it's, you know, and there's an old saying, write what you know, uh, which I think is sometimes a good idea, not always, but sometimes. And uh, it, I, I just had always thought, well, that would be fun to write a book in this place that I do know well, that I am fond of. Uh, and then, you know, you can go for research and uh, it's a tax deductible airline ticket. So, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for doing it. Um, but it was funny because I used to write. I would be sort of, I, I write in the mornings. I get up at five every day and write. And I would sometimes sort of open up my computer and go onto Facebook and say, right, I'm off to Paris. And then close it down and then start writing. <laughs> then the next time I'd look at Facebook, everyone would be going, oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, when are you back? And, and I was going, no, no, I'm not actually off. I'm just like, in my head, I'm going to Paris. It's like, in my imagination. Um, and it, it's a fun place to spend a couple of hours every morning, uh, even when you're living in the middle of Missouri. Alex George on his feelings about the city of light. In just a bit, he'll give us some more insights into his writing process. The charitable way of putting it is to say, well, I write very organically. The more honest way of putting it is that I just can't really be bothered to plan uh, at all. And so I just start. And I, I mean, I, I have an idea about what this story is about, um, but whether, whether it actually ends up being about that remains to be seen. We'll hear more about his life in the American Midwest and his experiences as both an author and a bookshop owner as we continue with Alex George on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Okay, so I have to ask then, I mean, we've just been talking about how you were li you've lived in Paris, you're working in Paris as a, an, an attorney. So how <laughs> does a British attorney end up in Columbia, Missouri? The old question. Yes, I get this a lot. So um, I, I have lived in Missouri since 2003. Um, and the reason I'm here, perhaps predictably, is um, because of a woman uh, who, somebody who I met actually in Paris in 1997, I think, when I was working there. Um, and we uh, got married in New York uh, and lived in London for a little while and uh, had one kid there and then we came back in 2003 as I say uh, and had had, a, had our daughter uh, in Missouri so that's why I'm here we're not actually together anymore but you know my kids are here and so home is where the heart is I guess so so I, I stayed so here I am there you go and I have to ask so you you have a you are a bookseller you own Skylark books right in, in Columbia yes. Okay, so what is it like then to, you know, have this bookstore where your books are being sold? I assume you're selling your books there, right? Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. It's, uh, so it's interesting. And, and um, it's been a process for me. Um, when we opened the shop, you know, I kind of insisted that my books should not have any special billing. They're sort of, they're spine. They're not, they're not face out. They're just like spine 
in spying out on the on the shelf, just in the G's along with everybody else. And I was sort of going, yeah, that's not really why we're here. This isn't, you know, we're just, we're just selling books. Um, and um, what, one of the best things about working in a bookstore is the ability to give people suggestions and recommendations uh, when they ask for them. Uh, and for the first six months or so, I would never recommend my own books, partly because there's so many other wonderful books out there. Um, but after, but, but my staff would, uh, and they would sort of go, oh, we should read this book or that book. And then they'd point at me and go, that's, that's the author. Uh, and, and if you ask nicely, he'll sign it for you. And so, so, and after a while, I sort of thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, I might as well get in on the act as well. And so I did. Um, but I sort of, after a while, stopped um, because I, there, there were one or two customers who I think, I just got the impression that they bought my book because they thought it would have been rude not to after I had suggested it. <laughs> And uh, the last thing I'd ever want to do would be to sort of guilt somebody into buying my book, unless they are close family members, of course. Uh, and so, so I kind of stopped doing that and just, um, yeah, so, and there are, you know, so it, it's, it's fun though. And uh, with this new book, I've not published a book and owned a bookstore before. Uh, and really all I'm doing these days is uh, we have a mezzanine floor and I'm sitting up there signing i mean literally hundreds and hundreds of books and putting them into envelopes and getting ready to mail them off so that's been that's been a lot of fun so i, I have to ask since you're a bookseller if you have any recommendations for our viewers uh, well yes i mean i've got a gazillion of them um <laughs> there's so many i mean it kind of you know my, if someone ever came in and said that my first question back would be well what did you read recently that you enjoyed because not everything is for everybody Right. Um, I mean, we are, we're selling a lot of The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel um, and a lot of the new Hilary Mantel book as well. Um, I mean, the book that I, I'm actually reading the book at the moment that's just come out in paperback and it's called Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett. And it's really weird, but kind of fabulous. It's about a family of taxidermists in Florida. So, you know, make it that way. Uh, and, and another book that we, we have sold an awful lot of is a wonderful book of micro essays by, um, and actually this would be my recommendation without any, any other information, given the, given the pandemic and given, given everything that's going on at the moment. So this book of essays is called The Book of Delights and it's by Ross Gay, who's a wonderful poet who lives in Bloomington. And, um, he just had the idea one day, it was more like an exercise for him of writing down from one birthday to the next birthday over the course of the year, something that he found delight in. Uh, and they're quirky and they're small and some of them are funny and some of them are sad, but they are all uplifting. And he's, uh, he's just a, he's a wonderful writer and it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And we've been selling them by the truckload because you know, people need to find some delight in their lives. And uh, that's one, one good way of doing it. That sounds exactly what the doctor ordered right now. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You mentioned too that you've been, you write at 5 a.m. So does that mean mm -hmm. you've started a new book, right? I have started a new book, yes. How's that going? Very, very slowly to the point of um, total immobility. Uh, I, so I actually... Let me see. So I 
have begun and abandoned two other books. And I wrote maybe about 15,000 words of one of them. Uh, and then I wrote uh, the opening chapter of the second one. Um, and then I sort of threw them both away. And I've now begun a third one. And I've written one chapter of that. Quite happy with it. Um, but since the pandemic started, people have come up to me and sort of said, oh, I'm sure you're getting a lot of writing done, aren't you? Because uh, you've got all of this time on your hands. And the answer to that is big fat no. Well, you know, absolutely not. But not for one to try. But hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. We'll get yeah. back to it. But I write, I write very slowly, uh, partly because I you know, do have all of these other jobs. So I do just have a little bit of time at the beginning of each day to do it. Um, but also I just go slowly anyway. Um, you know, social media is a weird thing, particularly for writers. And there are some writers who will sort of say, well, I wrote 2,000 words today. And it's like, unfriend. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you, don't talk to you anymore. Uh, and, and they just make everyone else feel terrible. So um, certain things are like how the sausage is made. You just like, don't talk about that. So. Right. <laughs> Because, I mean, are you still, you're still practicing law as well as running the bookstore and yes. this festival? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. It is a lot. It is a lot. My wife would tell you it was a little too much. And I, I actually would probably agree with her at this point. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Wow. So, and, and, and I saw somewhere, do you have to have certain things? Is, is that true that you like to have a certain cardigan when you're writing? Oh, you've done your research. That was a very old film that they made about me back in 2013. Um, Is it true yeah, or not? Yeah. Well, not anymore. No, I sort of, that, that cardigan probably got thrown out years ago now. That's a while. Um, yeah, but, but the one thing that I do need, um, and need is absolutely the right word, is coffee, uh, particularly at five o'clock in the morning. And I have, um, I'm tying it back into Paris, when I, when I, work there, I developed what I suspect was a clinical addiction to um, espressos, so the little things, and you know, people would go into the, to the, into the bars on their way into work in the morning, and this tiny cup of coffee, which you could actually stand a spoon up in, it was so strong, and they would just knock it back as if they were drinking medicine, which it kind of was, you know, it's just like, and then, then you're ready to go for the day. And so I sort of started drinking those and then just never stopped. So I now have an espresso machine in my house. And um, uh, yeah, th that is absolutely necessary in order for me to <laughs> even switch the computer on, let alone write anything. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, we hope that you find some time in between all the other things to, to keep working on the other book. I know many yeah, of us are, are excited to read it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, these are such strange times, Angie. I mean, everyone is feeling completely discombobulated. And the thing about writing is that I, um, you need time, but just as important, you need space in your head. Um, and that is very hard to come by right now. Um, and, you know, I hope that as things get back to normal, whether in the short term or the long term, some of that space will become uh, available again and I can sort of dive into these stories I want to tell. Do you want to give us any hints about what this next one might be or is that for us to wait and see? Yeah, absolutely not. Partly because I'll probably change my mind again knowing me and go and do something else. Um, there, 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 is a, there is a theory about letting the heat out of the oven. Um, 
uh, and also because I'm not entirely sure myself. I mean, there's a you know, the, if I'm the, the, the charitable way of putting it is to say, well, I write very organically. The more honest way of putting it is that I just can't really be bothered to plan uh, at all, and so I just start. And I, I mean, I I have an idea about what this story is about, um, but whether whether it actually ends up being about that remains to be seen. So if I whatever I tell you now, the chances of it actually <laughs> bearing any resemblance to it are fairly small. So. Well, I had to ask. I had to ask. Oh, of course, readers. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and I enjoyed the Paris Hours. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Alex George speaking about his life as an author and bookshop owner. Now to close out our podcast, here's a small reading from his most recent novel, The Paris Hours. Every morning, the piano rescues Soren Balakian from his dreams. The same low notes gently tug him away from everything that he has left behind. The ghosts that haunt his sleep are chased away by the music floating up through the floor from the studio below. He opens his eyes. The workbench on the other side of the room, the empty stairs of the puppets on the wall. A small gasp of relief escapes his lips. His head falls back onto the pillow as the music washes over him. The first theme emerges from the depths of the piano, no more than a whisper. Soren hears a heavy melancholy in the stately procession of low, single notes. Every morning he wonders what the composer has lived through to have drawn such sadness out of himself. And then, through the dark clouds, a shaft of brilliant sunlight. A new melody emerges, high and clear and heartbreaking. This is what Soren waits for. The tune cleaves the gathering shadows and wraps itself brightly around his heart. Those first brooding tones retreat, but they do not vanish. Now the music is two intertwined melodic lines, one low, one high, one sad, one full of hope. They meet and diverge, echoing each other, dual counterpoints of darkness and light. Sometimes they come together in sweet harmony, sometimes not. Finally, the music resolves back to its first theme, that simple forlorn elegy. The pianist's left hand stretches down the keyboard into ever lower registers until there are no more keys to be pressed, no more notes to be played. Silence crowds in. That's international best-selling author Alex George reading from his book, The Paris Hours, from publisher Flatiron Books, during our interview with him in April of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. The editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. AGC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast Audio Editing by Ben Smith. This podcast episode producer is Paul Langdon. And I'm your host, Rod Miley. Special thanks to Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds.
But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.